Welcome to the latest Experts in the Field podcast from Footanstead's Farms, Estates and Rural Land Team. With guest speakers and in-house experts, we'll provide insights into rural developments and current affairs. Welcome to the latest edition of our podcast series from the Farms, Estates and Rural Land Team at Footanstead. I'm Edward Venmore, Head of the Team. This week, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Jason Lenthal of Regenerate Power, as well as my colleague, Katana Cherry, Managing Associate in our Energy Team. Jason is the Global Business Development Director at Regenerate Power. They're a sustainable and ethical renewable energy company was founded in 2018 and focuses on the development of high impact solar, storage and green hydrogen projects. They focus on combining food and energy security. And I believe this is going to be a really interesting area for the sector and why it's great to be talking about it today. Qatar predominantly works for clients in the energy sector on solar, storage and other renewable projects. Today we're going to be discussing agrivoltaic technology. That's the simultaneous use of areas of land for both solar power and agriculture. This allows people to harvest both crops and green energy at the same time on the same stretch of land in a really sustainable way. It's highly topical at the moment. It came up during the recent Conservative Prime Ministerial contest with both Liz Truss and Vishy Sunak both commenting on it. They warned about solar panels filling UK's highest quality farmland. Liz Trust labelled solar panels on farmland as paraphernalia that could threaten food security. She remarked that our fields should be filled with our fantastic produce. However, the debate around using farmland for solar often assumes that and food production are completely incompatible. Agrivoltaics enables land to be optimised to address the land for both purposes and also uh, do things such as low livestock. It is a really interesting opportunity and one that landowners uh, should certainly consider and I hope that this discussion today will be real help of those looking into it. Jason Katai, welcome. Hi there. Hi Edward. Pleasure to be here. Good, thank you for joining us. To get things off, Jason, a question for you. So what is AgriPV and AgriVoltaic? So what are the different types of it? Okay, so firstly, we have the agri part, which is simply short for agriculture, and then PV, which is short for voltaics, which relates to the conversion of light into electricity using. But when we put them together, you get agrivoltaics, reduced down is agri PV, and then abbreviated further, in some cases, APV. But the term relates to combined agriculture with solar energy generation, allowing the dual use of land by farming under a canopy of solar panels. In principle, the AgriPV concept is not complicated to understand, and the potential benefits for all stakeholders is huge and compelling. The technology has been around for three decades, believe it or not, but in recent years, the methodology has benefited from long-term studies, R&D, technology efficiencies, and commercialization. Countries such as Japan have been installing AgriPV since 2004. China, South Korea, and USA have all been pioneers, along with a few European countries. However, interest has grown due to the cost of solar panels coming down, the massive interest and investment into renewable energy, and the financial pressures on farmers has been incredible. The drive to net zero is a tough one, and we need to avoid high-grade agricultural landlords due to energy demand. Using them together seems like a win-win. When we look at the idea of panels above crops, the first thing that normally comes to mind is how do the crops grow underneath? The panels used are different to normal ground-mounted solar arrays and are transparent, allowing enough light for the plants. Studies show that there is a limit to how much sun an individual plant can use. There is a light saturation point. Any extra light has no benefits to the plant's photosynthesis. 
past this point, the plants become too hot and need more water. Strategically placing panels above the crops can regulate the amount of sunlight that reaches each plant, so giving optimal sunlight to growth and minimizing the amount of water loss. The temperature under the panels is cooler from the plants, which helps the harvesting of energy from the panels. It's sometimes misunderstood, but solar panels operate much better when they are cool. When they are hot, they are less efficient. So you can see already that there is a great synergy where both agriculture and power generation are benefiting from working together. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't realise that they were see-through. That's really interesting to, to realise that it's literally over the crops. No, exactly. And that's how the light comes through to the crops, provides the shading, but enough light for the plants to grow. Yeah. And also why it would be so great in the UK as well, because obviously we don't have as hot temperatures as other places in the in the world, or at least not yet. So yeah, making sure that the PVs can be working at their optimum temperature seems like a really great idea for, for um, agricultural areas of the UK. Does it work best yeah, with particular absolutely. types of crops? And I think this is the main thing I was trying to explain is that the sort of misconception of how on earth does how have the plants grow underneath the panels. Three decades of studies and the efficiencies now are producing great results. But if I just explain the, so there's three types of the structures. First of all, there's a solar array mounted above the crops on high quality, best and most versatile land. And this sort of structure is suitable for farm workers and small farm machinery to operate underneath. Then there's also a solar array that's ground mounted on arable land with vertical bifacial panels interspaced to the distance required for the machine to operate so that crops such as cereals can be produced. And these panels are, are double-sided and take up a very small percentage of the paddock. So it's completely different to the other structures. So but, does that mean that the kind of the machinery goes down strips and between the panels? Is that how it works? No, and these panels also protect from wind, but obviously they don't protect from some of the other advantages of the panels above crops on the other structures, which can be protecting against hail and things. Hmm. But it enables the farmers to be able to harvest cereals, etc. And the third one is the closed system, such as a large solar greenhouse and indoor farming. I think in some countries, they also detail ground mounted solar projects with sheep grazing as agri PV, Yeah, but we don't think this really takes it far enough to be part of our definitions. We know in Germany that they do, but as ground mounted solar developers, we've been having sheep grazing underneath panels for years. It's always been a joke that they're the cheapest lawnmowers. And so it's, I don't think it should be brought into this whole sort of agri PV thing. That's like the background to, to the agri-PV and the current structures. I also yep. know in Germany, they use, they make big sheds out of solar panels. So you build a really high structure and then put sides and edges on it. And then that's used for agricultural machinery instead of a big barn. Would yep. you, I assume you're not really thinking that as agri-PV in the same way as the three-way types that you've described. I think that sort of comes under the closed system and you get commercial greenhouses yeah, so it, it's all part of the, the agri-PV family. In each country, you have different requirements, different crops, different growth, different clip. For us, yeah, primarily, we'll be looking at the first structure, which is the having the solar panels above the crops and growing things like you know, berries, lettuce, legumes, potatoes, tomatoes, that kind of thing. Yeah, I totally agree. From a legal perspective, we've been doing sheep grazing under PVs for years. But what you're talking about is completely different and um, yeah, really exciting to hear about. 
Jason, in the introduction, I referred to Liz Truss's comments during the course of the Tory prime ministerial contest. I appreciate that that was said, obviously, in the context of that, that the electorate that she was appealing to at that point in time. What discussions were you aware of with government of what government's view is to this form of PV? Are they more, is government in reality and the civil service there more receptive to this concept than perhaps Liz Truss's comments suggested? And I would add, I mean, when I was preparing for today's talk, you know, a very small amount of UK land is actually underground mounted solar at the moment. I think that's some stats I saw, it's only 0.1%. So there's a huge opportunity for a more balanced approach, I think. I just want what your take is on the government's likely trajectory here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult when you're looking at political um, political conversations, especially with the run-up to the current Conservative Party election, and you don't really know how much of that is serious or not. But that the government have their, their goals, their net zero goals. But in terms of solar and agriculture, there's still, there's still room for both ground-mounted solar on land just on its own, but on land that doesn't, you're not able to grow crops on. And I think that there's this sort of misconception in locally in some places that, oh no, we don't want all this land to be taken away and solar to be installed. I think it's important to, and this is what's with the Liz Trust, when we heard as a business, we thought, well, actually that, that's fine for us because the whole point of it is using it with dual use. So it's being able to address the energy security issues and food security. So. It's like saying to them, well, do you know what? You can say what you like, but we're not taking away agricultural use. So we're already doing it. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the, in, in terms of the UK, and I know we'll, we'll touch on this later in terms of the legal side of things, but the, the definition of agri-PB is still in its early stages. In Italy, it is a defined, agri-voltage is defined within the planning laws. Here, we are at the early stages and it's working with individual planning authorities, which we currently are. But then once it has its definition, then, you know, if I don't see there being anything that the government can really do. But as I say, if, you use, if you're using agricultural land and the farmers are continuing to, to make revenues and in fact increasing their yield, logic surely has got to come into it at some point. So. Jason, perhaps sort of putting together what we've, some of the things we've already just touched upon, but what do you see as the main be benefits of agri-PV? I think, without getting too deep, I think the huge issues with regards to the amount of food that's going to be needed over the next 30 years, the population increases, et cetera, et cetera. So the world needs to transition. But with the agricultural sector, massive effects by climate change, extreme and unprecedented weather events and patterns are all problems. So we've got to adapt our practices and incorporate new methods to protect the future of farming for generations. By having panels raised above the crops, the environment beneath is cooler in the summer months and then warmer in the winter. So there's a massive benefit there. In the typical system above crops, there is protection from hail, frost in the winter and scorching in the summer. So not only that health of the soil is improved with an increase in nutrient levels, valuable habitats are created and ecosystem flourish. These are just basic things to start with. Also, with the current droughts in Europe, I think it's vital to look at water management. With the agri-PV systems, we can harvest water in the winter months from the mountain panels and use them in the summer months. Yeah. So, as I already mentioned, the shaded environment created by the powers reduces the water requirements as the plants do not overheat. So, I think You're basically future-proofing the land while for against climate change that's going to come as well as creating a renewable energy source as well 
Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of examples of the protections that crops got hail, for example, on, on grapevines in, in South of France. This is a proven thing. Also, the, by having the panels over the grapevines, they're seeing some great studies where the quality of the wine is being produced because of the cooler climate under the panels, which means that not so much alcohol is in the vines. I'm all for, I'm all for the South of England becoming <laughs> the vineyards of Europe and that's great. Yeah, that <laughs> so I think that hopefully I answered your question, but I think that you're protecting the crops. You're being able to farm underneath them. You're able to increase the nutrients of the soil. It's a win-win situation. <laughs> And obviously increasing energy security as well by, by yeah. having a renewable energy source. Yeah, absolutely. Um, increasing, increasing that towards net zero. Yeah. And if you think about it, you've got, if you've got one piece of land that's been growing crops and then another piece of land, same size next to it, that's got energy, you, you then put them both on top of each other. The yield that's increased in there, you might lose a little bit, um, in terms of the, in terms of the crop, maybe say 10%. But then what you make from the soda increases the yield to, instead of having, say, 100%, you've got 180% on one piece of land. So as we go through identifying land for the right technologies, you're maximizing it. Yeah, I think at like, the government policy level, I think the really, really important point is that to hit the targets that the government wants to achieve and we need to achieve, yeah, we do need to balance approach to these things. There's going to be multiple sources of new forms of energy and expansion of existing forms of energy. And this is one example of that, isn't it? Katana, can I perhaps mm. move on to uh, this dual use of land? Throws mm. up some interesting concepts. Perhaps you can make some comment around you know, the main is legal issues for a landowner in terms of how they, how they might look to structure this sort of arrangement. Yes, of course. Generally, the standard structure for a solar farm is a lease. Firstly, an option for lease when the development needs to go and get planning and make sure that it's got good connection and everything else that is required, make sure all the surveys are correct, but to be able to obtain that planning. And then once the lease is granted, then the land, the developer for the solar farm would have exclusive possession. And where we've had grazing licenses previously, then that's usually a license, either license back to the landowner or another third party to carry out that kind of function, that grazing function. Um, for these agri-PV, I think you need to be carefully thinking about kind of those access rights for the landowner in terms of that farming use. And associated with that, when there's more access, kind of more controls over the land in terms of protection of the solar panels and damage to those and also damage to the crops. So the parties are working together, basically, to make sure that both of their interests are sufficiently protected. I think the other thing that would ha needs to be looked at even more carefully is just kind of the other areas of the land to enable kind of movement of around the sites. So if you had just a big solar farm, which had just constant solar panels, movement in and around the site isn't as problematic because you're not trying to get machinery in and out. But as Jason mentioned, if you've got machinery moving in and around the solar panels, that's obviously something that you've got to take into account as well. And just another thing to bear in mind that there are biodiversity net gain requirements on developments these days. And therefore, there are effectively set aside areas, which in most, in all developments, the size of which varies depending on, depending on a, the size of the 
property and also just the constraints of the land itself, which would need to be taken into account when you're planning the site and planning where the agricultural use will go versus the solar panels and then these other biodiversity net gain areas or landscaping areas that might be required soon to the planning application. Is there yes, anything right. else that you've like has come up on your side that you're particularly worried about from a, a developer's perspective when you're talking to your landowners and making sure that you're working closely together to, to work through all of those kind of how are we going to work together for the long term because these leases do tend to be 30, 40 years plus in, in length. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing that we're not just putting in structures for a few years, what we're doing is something that's going to be up to 50 years. The whole alignment of ideas, what's their sort of succession plans so within the, is it a generational thing? Do they want to farm the land? Do they want us to farm the land? Do they just want a, the lease from the land? Are they interested to have energy from the plant? We just need to organize these things right from the word so that everyone can move forward and you know, not in five years time sell. I don't want you to do that. Because when you're, when you're changing the ecology of land and you're moving forward, the, the land will be very different in 50 years time, but it will be improved. It's not, especially with agri-PV, I mean, it, it's a work, working, it's a working farm. Things will change. When you have ground-mounted solar, you could argue that what's happening under the panels when you take them out in 35 years, it's very different with agri-PV. So there's a much closer relationship, I think, with the landowner and farmer. You mentioned yeah, actually runoff before and the ability to harvest water from the solar panels as well. And actually drainage is a really hot topic at the moment. It's, it's coming up and being a requirement under a lot of planning applications to really look at the drainage of sites. And I guess that's something that's, that farmers really care about as well, making sure that runoff and drainage and, and ditches aren't initially, ditches aren't destroyed in relation to when the works are being put in. But also there's a kind of an ongoing importance of water and ever increasing importance importance if we're going to head into more drought years over the next 20, 30 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is all part of the design. When it, first thing we do when we're looking at, we're looking at the farm, we're not looking at the, how much we can generate from energy. The first part is the farm. What are the issues? What do we need to do and make, in order to make it work? How do we mitigate all the issues? So all of these sorts of things are discussed, especially like you mentioned about in droughts, we've all seen it this year, installing the water management systems, there's, there's lots that we can go into, uh, depending on the size of the farm. But yes, all one of the upsides of the agri-PV structure. I think the interesting comments, Jason, I think the one of the important things I would add is that any landowner looking at uh, this type of project, or indeed any type of project, does need to properly consider what they're signing up for. Because this is, as you've indicated, a very long-term arrangement, and they've got to consider the question of subsidies, what they might be um, not able to apply for, what they might be able to apply for, depending on what government policy is, etc. So there's a lot of factors that they need to take into account before they go forward with any form of development, be it residential or residential development or something like this. Perhaps just to pull things together, Jason, as we draw this to a close, what are the three main things that you think a landowner should look at when considering an agri-PV scheme? Yeah, it's it's a difficult question in terms of it's quite broad, but I think to start with, you've you got to think, is the crop climate resilient? If not, then it needs future proofing through careful agri-PB design and climate mitigation practices. Because if you don't have that, then you know, you're, you're just sleepwalking into an issue. Also, the ability to diversify the current revenue streams that can replace those 
valuable incentives that you mentioned that are obviously being phased out. This can be just through the land lease, potential revenue shares, electricity export, for example. It just opens up a lot more opportunity. I think the final point should be to encourage farmers to discuss the opportunities of agri-PV, not just for their own land, but the benefits to the local community, farming clusters, local employment, being part of the energy and food security transition, potential green energy savings for the community, ecological enhancements and habitats all benefit rural areas. Thank you much, Jason. Thank you, Katai. Thank you both for your, your time today. It's been really interesting to talk to what will be obviously a new and exciting expanding expanding area. For those that are interested, please do click on the links in the notes section to this podcast to get Jason's contact details and a link to Regenerate 8's website. And if you're interested in more on these types of issues, please do listen to other episodes in our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next Foot Ants Experts in the Field podcast. Join us next time for more insights on important rural and agricultural issues. Find out more about our podcast series at foothansty.com.